Welcome everyone today. Myself, my name is Ryan, I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. It's great to have you with us if you're tuning in online, around the atrium, or here in the room. Up in the bleachers, I saw the excited faces today as they came in. It was like, the bleachers are open! <laughs> so we charge double for the bleachers. So just for those of you, just so you know, that are back there, we have ushers to watch your giving patterns. So... I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. So it's great to be here today. And uh, we've had some great communicators this this past series that have just done such amazing jobs. I'm really grateful as we've just kind of begin exploring, like, who was the historical Jesus, right? Uh, The scriptures that we have are beautiful. And they are, in a lot of ways, an interpretation of the significance of this life of the historical Jesus, right? They're written decades, some multiple, multiple decades after the fact. They're, they're using sources, and they're crafting, and they're telling a story, and they're interpreting the life of this Jesus, this Jewish Mediterranean peasant, uh, and the significant impact that he had. By the way, a Jewish Mediterranean peasant who would die at the hands of Rome as an insurrectionist, right, but then would later become the lord of that empire, about 300 years later. It's kind of a fascinating history there. And then it's kind of interesting to see what Christians do with that, right? How do we deal with that reality that the one that was once crucified as an insurrectionist, as an enemy of the state, is now the one in which we organize under. So all part of our beautiful heritage uh, within the Judeo-Christian tradition, right? So we've been exploring this, and we're wrapping up today as we kind of launch into Holy Week. And so we're going to talk today a lot about the significance about the historical events that are part of Holy Week that really led to the historical Jesus being crucified. If there are a few things that we know for certain with, with, with absolute certainty from a historical perspective is that there was a person named Jesus. This person named Jesus was Jewish. This person named Jesus grew up in kind of northwest Galilee, that this person, Jesus, went to Jerusalem at least once, and that this person, Jerusalem, ultimately was crucified by the Romans. Like, those are the historical facts we know. And then the question is, well, what led up to that? What was all that about? We've been talking about that. So if you have, if you're kind of new, maybe this is your first time here, and you're like, oh, what is going on? Well, you can catch up, and we're going to talk about some things today that are building off of some topics over the last three or four weeks, but hopefully you won't be too lost. I'll try to explain some things as we go along. There is no basketball or football or anything today, so everybody can, I mean, if you have reservations and you made them for 1130, that's not my problem. You you should know better than that, right? No, I'm just kidding, just kidding. So let me ask you a question. Raise your hand up nice and high. How many of you love it when somebody at work, somebody in your neighborhood, one of your Facebook friends, a spouse, a partner, challenges your actions or your way of thinking? How many of y'all just love it when they do that? They just call you out on your garbage, right? Most of us don't like that. Shiloh does. She's into it. She's like, it makes me feel alive, you know? But most of us don't like to be challenged. Not many of us, Shiloh excluded, not many of us wake up in the morning going, I hope that my ethics, my way of parenting, my financial management, my career, my spirituality, I just hope that these undergo a good challenge today. I hope that somebody confronts me about the lies that I am just perpetuating in the world. And I hope it's my spouse. I hope it's that partner. I hope it's the person I wake up to every morning. That would just be wonderful. And I hope they're right. We don't, yeah, like we don't, we don't think like that. We especially don't want to be challenged when that challenge we think will cost us a measure of our comfort or our privilege. 
We don't like to be challenged because ultimately nobody likes to be wrong, right? I mean, that's, there's just something inside of us. We don't like to be wrong because ultimately, like some part of our internal stability, our makeup, who we are as people, like it's defined by how right we are, which is what's fascinating about the academy because the academy is kind of built on peer review, right? Like you're, you're writing in the academy, scholars are working out details, they're proposing theories, and they're getting into debates and arguments. But in the academy, most of the time it's done in this very civil way because they know that the peer review, they know the challenge to the way of thinking, the challenge to a certain, you know, conclusion from some presuppositions will actually make their writing better, could make their argument better, right? And so there can be that engagement. But in our everyday normal lives, right, we don't think like that. We don't think that. But I wonder if we could all like pause for a moment and think of someone in our lives who, for whatever reason, we just, we just trusted them. Like we knew them. They, maybe they had a gentle way about it. Maybe they just had a way to connect with you, but, but they could challenge you and you knew it was for your own good. You had so much stability and love and you, your, your, the relationship was so healthy and so strong that any challenge to your way of thinking or any challenge to your rightness wasn't seen as a part of your identity, but you could actually get past the initial like sweaty palms, red ears, heartbeat racing, defensive mode that takes place and actually listen. Did you ever have somebody in your life who could do that? And I think we always want that. We have that person in our life because ultimately somewhere inside of us, we know that if we never experience challenge, we'll never experience change. That like if we don't have any voice in our life that challenges our way of thinking, our way of being, our way of conversing, our way of managing money, if we don't have anyone that will challenge us, then we'll never change, right? That without that pressure, without that stressing, we won't see growth. Now, last week, Dennis, Pastor Dennis, as he was like talking about the historical Jesus, he talked about how the historical Jesus was a prophetic voice, that he existed in the line of the prophets, and that he was a prophetic voice, and the prophetic voice was always one of change, right? The prophetic voice was one that would speak about and talk about the nature and character of God as they understood it. And it was always this, cha- this voice of change to the people, right? Saying, we need to change. Like the Bible word is repent. We don't like that word. I totally get it, right? So we'll just talk about a different word that doesn't have so much baggage, right? But that, that might be the prophetic word, like repent would be like the language, but it was a, a call to change. And, and the prophets were always speaking to change because they were wise and they could see and they would think, if we don't change, the course that we're on is going to lead to destruction. It's going to lead to pain. Y'all have that person in your life is like, keep heading down that path and this is what's going to happen. And you're like, no. And then sure enough, that's where you end up, says every 18-year-old. <laughs> but you don't say it until you're 25. I get it, right? The 16-year-old us will never admit that our parents were right, right? And, and, and that's like kind of, that Jesus lived in that, and he talked about change, and he said there has to be a change. And if Jesus is offering a change, it means what? That he has to be offering a challenge. And we've already decided that nobody likes to be challenged. And so as we head into Holy Week, the week that would eventually be the end of the historical Jesus's life, we need to start with that real reality that what Jesus was doing was challenging, right, the normalcy of culture, 
He was challenging those things that we've been talking about. And the historical Jesus, I believe, saw Passover week as the perfect opportunity to bring his challenge to the people, right? So he said, Passover week is going to be my week, and I'm going to challenge this conventional wisdom, the conventional wisdom of Rome that leads to injustice, the conventional wisdom of our religion that leads to injustice and exclusion. And he saw Passover week as the week to do that. Now, why Passover week, right? Because there was going to be an influx. Everybody that could get there would go to Jerusalem, right? A, a community that would maybe have 40,000 people living in it would double, triple even, quadruple on, on a major festival like this. So, so Jesus knew that the people were going to be there, and he also believed that it wasn't too late to change, right? The only reason why Jesus would offer a challenge to change is if because he believed there was time, Right, we've talked about the historical Jesus having an understanding and a belief that there was a collision course that was taking place between Rome and Jerusalem, and that collision course was going to end in war. And he believed that his generation was heading to an impending war, and it was because of the injustice of Rome, and as they were meeting the politics of holiness within the Jerusalem cultic way of thinking, this was going to explode. But Jesus believed it wasn't too late to change, so he, he says, I'm going to bring to Jerusalem and I'm going to bring to Jerusalem my challenge that we can change. And Jerusalem itself was this center, right? It was the center of the national and religious life of the people. And the Passover festival was the ultimate festival. People were coming from all over the place. And not only would there be an influx of Israelites, not only would there be an influx of people from the countryside traveling, and there would be an influx of the Roman presence, right? So there'd be Roman soldiers there. So the city would be filled with all types of people, right? The city would be filled with peasants who had discontented hearts, pilgrims who were disenfranchised by the policies of Rome and by the policies of the, the temple leaders. There would be people who were there who were powerful, benefiting from the structures and systems that were in place. There would be Roman soldiers there. He knew it was all there. And, and so, so Jesus at one point set his sights according to Luke, on Jerusalem. And I think what that means in our language is he realized this was the opportunity. This was the opportunity to make his message, his program, his alternative vision known in the best way possible, in probably the most controversial way. In Luke 9.51, it says, when the days for his being taken up were fulfilled. So again, Luke is writing through an interpretive lens of post-resurrection, and he says, in that moment when Jesus realized the time was come, he set his gaze. He resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. So Jesus makes this very intentional shift to say, okay, this week, this Passover week is going to be the week. And so Jesus knew. He knew that Jerusalem would be this place that he could bring his alternative vision. He could be that prophetic voice of change, and he could challenge the conventional wisdom and the politics of holiness that were so prevalent and that people just assumed this is the way it had to be. And I believe deeply that as Jesus set his mind and set his gaze, it means he began to think. Do you all know that Jesus had to think? Right? We, nobody talks like that. Jesus didn't have to think. He just did. He never had to plan. He just did. No! So I think Jesus, as he sets his gaze, that means he started thinking and processing and planning. How do I get people's attention? 
How do I make the most of this cultural moment? How do I make the people understand? How do I get them to see this alternative way of being and existing that can bring peace, that can end the violence with Rome, that can, that can totally reframe and reshape the way we think about our religion? How do I do that? And so Jesus, on that journey, as he travels from northern Galilee all the way down through Samaria, as he travels from where he would have done most of his ministry, right around the Sea of Galilee, he knows this is his moment, and he starts to think, how do I do it? And I just believe Jesus was doing what any of us would do when we need wisdom, right? You're praying, you're thinking, you're running through scenarios in your mind. Y'all ever done that? Raise your hand my eye. Y'all ever done that, thought about it? No? You should try that sometime. Like, just feel free to run scenarios in your mind. Like, before you say it, think about it. It's not a bad idea, right? So Jesus is working through this. He's got people. He's planning, right? And, and he knows this is my moment. He knows as he, as he thinks through, how can he get the message out? How can he let people know what he's all about? I think Jesus knows it's going to be dangerous, and I think the historical Jesus may have even had an understanding that this could cost him his life. But I don't believe the historical Jesus said, it's time to die, let's go do it. I don't think his plan was to die. I think we interpret that very rightly so, and I think the gospel writers interpret that, and we, we try to make meaning out of evil in our world. But I don't think the historical Jesus was like, guys, here it is, it is time, it's been a good life, it's been 33 years and it's time. Let's go. No, I think Jesus recognized what it would and could and potentially cost him, but the purpose, right, wasn't to die. The point was to follow that prophetic path, to be one of those teachers, those radical teachers who were offering an alternative vision to bring social change, to avoid disaster with Rome. That's ultimately why the historical Jesus was going into Jerusalem that day. And so, as he's going, he has two, three really brilliant ideas. And he comes up with a program. He comes up with a plan. This is what I'm going to do when I get into Jerusalem. He's going to do three things. He's going to spend his time that week teaching. He's going to teach about the, the, the collision that's gonna, and what's going to happen when these two paths collide. And he's going to do two demonstrations. And I believe these demonstrations were well thought out. They were organized and planned. So he's going to enter the city in a very specific way, and he's going to enter Jerusalem, uh, enter the temple, excuse me, in a very specific way. And he's going to do it in his tradition. He's going to call on imagery and, and, and ways of thinking that everybody would know. These would have been very familiar sites. So he's organizing two political demonstrations, and that makes some of us uneasy to use that language. But if the idea of politics is how we organize society, that's ultimately what Jesus was coming and combating against. And so he says, I'm going to stage two demonstrations that are going to cause people to see and understand metaphorically by enacting something, right? So he enters Jerusalem on a day. And as he comes into Jerusalem that day, as our video said, there's two entrances that are going to take place this year into the city. One is going to be the Roman procession. The Roman governor who's been put in charge of, of Judea is going to ride in with a, an assortment of troops and a garrison, and they're going to come in, and they're going to sure up Roman's presence, Rome's presence in Jerusalem because of all the pilgrims. And, and they know that there's always potential for violence when these crowds gather, so they're marching in shields blazing in the sun, swords and spears, war horses, and they're coming in from the east. 
excuse me, they're coming in from the west, and they're making their grand entrance into Jerusalem, and probably all the religious leaders who are, their job is to work and coordinate with Rome are there. And a whole bunch of people are there celebrating because this is what you would do. So, so they're all walking in, marching in, and this procession, this parade is a reminder who's in charge. It's a reminder that we're here. Don't screw with us. It's a reminder that we keep the peace. The Pax Romana is kept through these swords and through these spears and through imperial might. And meanwhile, from the east, Jesus says, that's foolishness. We are going to enter the city in a totally different way because I'm offering a totally different vision for how culture, society, humanity should function. And so Jesus stages a counter-entrance, right, coming in from the east, and he's acting out a very famous passage from a very famous prophet named Zechariah about a king of peace. And so this isn't some moment in time where Jesus just like randomly falls on a donkey and comes in, right? He's planned it out because he knows Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 that says, exalt, great, O daughter of Zion. Shout for joy, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. A just savior is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. By the way, Matthew has Jesus riding on both a colt and a donkey at the same time because Matthew doesn't understand Hebrew poetry that is in parallelism, right? It's just an emphatic way of saying it. So Matthew, is he's like saying, it's like, oh, that he rode in on a donkey and the donkey's colt, right? Which is kind of fun to know that, right? So Jesus is staging this, and it says that the, the Zechariah passage says he's going to banish the chariot from Ephraim and, and the horse from Jerusalem, like, think about the war horses that just came, and he's going to banish all of them. The warrior's bow will be banished, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And the truth is, Jesus wasn't simply, like, dogmatically fulfilling some prophecy to say, look, I'm the Messiah. No, he was reenacting something. He was demonstrating this vision of peace in a way that people would catch. So in Mark 11, when we read it now with that understanding, it says that when Jesus drew near to Jerusalem, right, to Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, which is to the east, he says to his disciples, right, okay, now it's time. We've talked about this. The plan, it's in place. Dun, dun, ba, dun, 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 ba, dun, 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 Go into the village. Opposite you, there's going to be a donkey there. I need you to get it. Nobody's ever sat on it. Untie it. Bring it here right? So he's what? He's living out the plans. I don't think Jesus, like, I think Jesus probably had talked with his disciples about this plan. This is what we're going to do. It's going to be awesome. They're going to hate it. Y'all ever done something just because you know people are going to like it? I do that all the time. <laughs> it's just the spirit of Jesus in me sometimes. Like, oh, they're going to hate this. <laughs> So he gets it and he says, go, go get it, untie it, bring it here. If anybody asks you about it, just tell them, hey, the master has need of it and we'll, we'll bring it back. We're just borrowing it. So they went off and they found the colt tied there at the gate and they untied it. And some of the bystanders said, hey, what are you doing with that donkey? I don't want to tie that colt. That thing's never been ridden. It's going to be a disaster. They said, well, Jesus needs it. And they said, okay, go ahead. So they brought the colt to Jesus. They put their cloaks over it and he sat on it. And then many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. So the palm branches, which were, are an ancient, ancient symbol of victory, an ancient symbol of peace, an ancient symbol of eternal life. 
And they start waving these branches instead of swords and shields. And they followed him, probably a very small group of people, probably peasants, probably the disenfranchised. Remember that group of people that we said a few weeks ago were excluded because they couldn't pay all the taxes and they couldn't participate in religious life and they had no place in that world? Those were the ones that were probably on the procession with Jesus. I doubt very seriously that any of the council, the religious leaders were there. My guess is that they would have all been with Rome because their job was to work with Rome and keep the peace. They weren't doing something bad. That was what they were supposed to do. And so you have Jesus with this ragtag group of people that are waving palm trees and laying cloaks on the ground. And they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that is to come. Hosanna in the highest. And he enters Jerusalem and goes into the temple area and he looks around at everything. And since it was already late, he says, we'll hold off on the next one. And he goes out to Bethany with the 12 where he's going to stay. Every night, Jesus goes into the city and he leaves the city. That's what he does this week. So Jesus enters Jerusalem, and not in a haphazard way, not in a way to fulfill some like prophecy so that you can prove that, that Jesus is God, but in a very intentional, like activist way, demonstrating against Rome's path to peace. He's saying, this Roman way of peace, this is not our understanding of God's vision for the world. Our understanding of God's vision for the world comes from Zechariah 9, the king of peace. And that's what we need. That's what we declare. And undoubtedly, word would spread about this demonstration that took place, about another one entering the city like the Roman governor, the one entering the city like a king. And eventually, my guess is that this would have been used as evidence against Jesus in whatever mock trial he had, which probably historically wasn't much of a trial. Rome just wouldn't care. <laughs> Rome would just, yeah, go, crucify him. Like, that, that's just how Rome worked. But undoubtedly, that would start to spread. And, and then it becomes, now, now what are we going to do? Because that act in and of itself could, could very easily be interpreted as Jesus is saying, he's the king of the Jews. And that's what the charge was, right? That's what they put on the cross, king of the Jews. It was treason, high treason. And he was tried as a nonviolent resistor because Rome would not, Rome would only crucify the leader of nonviolent resistors, of resistance movements. They would not bother with the nails. It would cost too much money. Truth be told, the iron, the wood, the time, it would cost too much money for Rome to crucify nonviolent followers. But the leader, he, they would crucify, and they would say, look, it's over with. And, and throughout the first century in Jerusalem, you have this experiment of nonviolent resistance coming up historically. And so Jesus is then, that eventually is going to be crucified as that insurrectionist. He did become an enemy of the state. He was guilty of that. He was saying Rome's way is wrong. Now, just as Jesus would enter Jerusalem, the next day, early in the week, he would enter the temple in another demonstration. And this would be a demonstration, not against Rome, but against Israel's path to God, right? This would be Jesus entering into the temple and saying, the way we are organizing and thinking about how to access and be present with God is jacked up. And so this demonstration would probably become his, the, the, pardon the pun, nail in the coffin. <laughs> like th because this starts to mess with the money, 
right? Because, because the temple was where all the money flowed. All the money flowed from Jerusalem to Rome through the temple. And so Jesus starts to mess with the money, but it's not the money, and that's what I want us to get. It's what everything was happening in the temple. It's not, it's not the money that was the problem, right? People are like, we shouldn't sell things in church because Jesus turned over tables of, it's like, no, we're missing the point there, right? You can sell a book at church. It's okay. That's not the point. The point was the whole structure and system was modeling the exclusionary politics of holiness. And so that week early on, Jesus enters what's called the Temple Mount, right? It's a 35-acre complex, 35 acres. It's about what, if you walk outside today, you'll see all this grassy field in the back of our building. It's about that size. And there's multiple buildings on that, on that what's called the Temple Mount, uh, one would be the Holy of Holies, the temple itself, which was not really a public building. It was just a space where the God lived. That was common in, in ancient Mesopotamia. It was like this was where the God of the people lived, right? It was the house of the God, right? So there's this Holy of Holies. But public worship happened around it, right? And public worship happened in these different courtyards, right? And so there was the court of the priests that was the closest to the Holy of Holies. And then there was the court of Israel, which was for men only. And then there was the court of the women. Beyond these courts, there were other courts, right? There was a court where you could buy your sacrificial animals because you couldn't bring an animal if you're traveling far. There was a court where you would exchange your coins. If you had coins that had an image on them, you weren't allowed to use them to buy your, your bird or your animal because they were unclean coins. So you had to have a holy coin that had no image on it. So you would take an image that had a coin that had the image of Caesar and you would exchange it for a coin that, didn't have, that had no image on it and then you could buy it. Then you could buy your perfect sacrifice that you could make. Right? And so there were all these different courts. And Gentiles, non-Jews, were extremely limited into where they could go in this area upon penalty of death, right? If, if a Gentile, an unclean, unholy person were to walk beyond a certain point, you would, you would face the death penalty. And so you see, the temple itself was a picture and an enacted living out of this politics of holiness. There's just certain people that are better. There's certain people that get it. There's certain people that are holy. There's certain people that are pure. It's purity culture lived out in this space. Physically, you could see it. And Jesus says, this is where I'm going to make my point. This is where I'm going to make my point, that this politic of holiness is oppressing so many people, pushing them out, and then they're faced with Roman injustice as well. It's a powder keg. It's going to explode. And so he enacts uh, the second demonstration, and probably his most, most public one and most famous like, way of being a prophet, right? Just a public demonstration, because prophets did weird stuff. They would sit around naked in the temple square. They'd roll around in their own feces. It was a bizarre thing, the prophetic calling but they were always demonstrating visually what was happening in their mind and in their hearts with the divine. And, and so Jesus enacts two visions, one of Isaiah and one of Jeremiah, two very well-known prophets. He has two things in mind. Isaiah 56 talks about like these burnt offerings that people are sacrificing and they, they think everything is okay, but it's not. And, and he knows that this passage says that the house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. And actually, the passage in Isaiah, believe it or not, actually says all peoples and eunuchs. I mean, this is the vision of Isaiah that like sexuality and gender realities that would make a person impure, unclean in the rest of the known world were not to be a factor in the temple of Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's Isaiah. Like the vision is there. 
And Jesus calls on that vision. And then he calls on Jeremiah, another prophetic voice that was saying, destruction is coming. Jeremiah chapter 7, he talks about how the leadership of the temple would say, oh, the temple is here. The temple is here. We're, we're protected by the temple. And the prophetic voice says, no, you've got to reform your ways. <laughs> you've got to deal justly with your neighbor. Stop oppressing the alien and the orphan and the widow. Stop shedding innocent blood in this place. Don't follow after other gods to your own harm. Then, then I'll continue to dwell with you. Right? Then, then, you'll, then, then, then this thing, this, your, your experience of me will be genuine. But look at you. Jeremiah says, look, you put your trust in deceptive words to your own loss. Do you think you can steal and murder and commit adultery and, and perjure yourself? And then come and stand in my presence and, and say, oh, we're safe. <laughs> we can commit all these abominations again. He says, has the house which bears my name in your eyes become a den of thieves? I've seen it. This is Jeremiah. Very famous passage that people would have known. So Jesus says, this is what it is. And so, these two voices, they capture the compassionate heart and mind and the inclusive political vision of the historical Jesus, and he demonstrates them at the very heart of the center of exclusion and the politics of holiness. And so, in Mark 11, we see that Jesus came to Jerusalem, he enters the temple area, and he drives out those that are buying and selling there. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling the doves. And he didn't permit anyone to carry anything through the temple area. That's strange. You can't carry your sacrifices. Like I just pictured Jesus running, knocking stuff out of people's hands, you know, like the bully at, at high school would knock your books. Oh, that didn't happen to you. It's just me. Okay. Um, you know, Jesus is like, and, but this is a very, cow, it's not Jesus loses his temper, Okay. This is a calculated demonstration. And he teaches them in the moment, is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples, but you've made it a den of thieves. One scholar suggests that a better translation than den of thieves is den of violent ones because it captures the essence without obscuring the meaning, right? Because when we hear den of thieves, we automatically go to like, oh, they're stealing from the people. It's not it's not the very act of changing money. It's not the very act of selling. It's just that they're gouging them. It's, it's, uh, they're being unshrewd. No, like what Jesus is saying, the whole place is filled with people who hide in their violence. It's not a den where thievery takes place. It's the hangout of the thieves. It's the hangout of the violent ones. It's the hangout where it happens. And so Jesus was calling for reformation. Uh, he was reimagining what the temple might be as a place of universal worship. The vision of Jeremiah and Isaiah where everyone could have access, regardless of your, your, your economic status, regardless of what coins you had. Everybody could come. The money changing, the selling of perfect birds, the barriers for women and Gentiles, they all serve to sustain and prop up this like politic of holiness. And so Jesus says it all has to go, all of it. And so to the high priest who was ultimately placed there by Rome, who was in charge of, of like relationships and the council that the high priest had put around Jesus, Right? They said Jesus is a false prophet and he's dangerous. Why? Because he's leading God's people astray. <laughs> he's telling them not to fulfill the law. He's telling them not to follow the Bible. Don't follow our script. That's what Jesus is doing. So they're doing their job. They're trying to protect the people. 
And in that moment, they say, we've got to do something. He was a danger. He was a danger to the safety and the security of all the people. The arrangements with Rome were in jeopardy because of this lunatic who was going around, riding in on donkeys, proclaiming a kingdom of peace, going in and saying that the whole system that we've set up, that we have a Bible verse for, is no good and needs to end. And so the charge was blasphemy. The power, the things, whatever he's doing, it's not of God because it's against our understanding of Scripture. It's against the way we interpret our Bible. And so the way Jesus entered that temple was that demonstration against Israel's path to God. You see, I believe for Jesus, he was deeply Jewish, and he understood that Israel was a chosen people. But they were chosen not for separation, but for invitation. Right? Israel was chosen in Jesus' interpretation, in Jesus' understanding, not to be a people separate and segregated, holy in that, but to be separated for a holiness that is inclusion, a holiness that welcomes everyone. That was the separation because everything in Mesopotamian culture, every religious way of being was exclusionary. It was like, this is our God and we worship him this way and we worship this God as well and this one as well. And you got to do all this stuff what would be truly revolutionary was to say, no, no, none of that. Everybody, everybody can experience God. Everybody, see, that was the chosenness. See, I think the ultimate act of holiness, of separation for Jesus, like this is hard to like, think about because we think of it, we think of holy in such exclusionary. But if holiness is set apart, if the word holy literally just means to be set apart, right? For Jesus, the historical Jesus, I believe this deeply, that the ultimate act of holiness, the ultimate demonstration of separateness from the profane was to destroy the categories themselves that separated us. Was to say, wait, 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 we are so different as a people, everybody's welcome here. And that's why we treat the foreigner just like we treat the one who's with us. They all get the Sabbath, even our animals get the Sabbath. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. This, this, this only women here and only Gentiles here and this animal has to go here and this coin has to be used here. No. The ultimate act of separation from the normalcy of civilization was to create a space and to explain a God that could be experienced by everyone. And so Jesus would then spend the rest of the week teaching on the dangers that happened or that would happen when these two paths of the politics of Rome or the, 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 the injustices of Rome meet the politics of Jerusalem and holiness. So he's demonstrated against both of them, right? And now he starts a teaching program. He comes in every day and he just sits and he teaches because he knows these are going to collide. It's going to lead to war. So he's going to teach on an unruly group of tenant farmers He's going to teach on where his authority actually came from. He's going to talk about paying taxes to the emperor. He's going to teach on the resurrection. And most significantly, he's going to give the greatest commandment to just love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. He'd point to the dangers of those who wore long robes and fame, and they loved it, and they loved their positions and power. And in contrast, he would point to the widow who had nothing, but she gave out of her poverty. And he said, that's beautiful. That's what it is. He warned of the impending temple destruction 
a great persecution that would come from Rome if things didn't change. He taught people what to watch for. And all of these teachings were in service of his passion for his people, his desire to see war and death and famine and violence avoided and to see justice and inclusion and peace find its way. And so the teachings and the demonstrations by this one who sought reform ultimately became intolerable to Rome and it became intolerable to the Jewish leadership. Not because I think the Jewish leadership were evil, but because they couldn't see it. They were doing their best to keep their people safe and they thought this person is going to bring ruin. And they couldn't see past the privilege of the the normalcy that had given them their power. They couldn't see past their interpretation of the law. They couldn't see past those things. And so they said, he's got to go. And when we take the time to actually challenge ourselves with understanding the historical Jesus and the things that historically led to his death and what he historically believed, like understanding that Jesus was an actual challenge for his people. It invites us to experience the living Christ, what we celebrate as the resurrected one, right? It invites us to experience that living Christ as a source of power in us to continue the program, to challenge the structures that are contrary to Jesus' way of peace. That the Spirit of Jesus empowers us to look for those spaces in our everyday normal lives and to say, what does it mean to offer this alternative vision today? What does that look like? So I just want to encourage all of us if we are going to be peacemakers, if we're going to follow the path of the historical Jesus, that we move beyond our theological interpretations that serve our personal egos, that make us feel really good about being forgiven and chosen and, 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 and all of that stuff, which I think has its place. But when it overwhelms the historical realities of what Jesus was inviting us into, it just turns into a different kind of violence an othering that takes place that we saw in our own community this past week. Like the othering that separates, that says they're the problem. Them. And so to follow Jesus, I believe deeply, is not about going to heaven. <laughs> it's about creating heaven here. I just, I don't, I just, it's just who I am. <laughs> and so, I want to encourage us as people who choose to follow Jesus, or if you're considering following Jesus, I think there's a joy that comes in creating heaven on earth. I think there's a peace that comes from it. I think there's all of those things that we all have experienced in some way, form, or another as we've kind of followed in faith this reality that we call the living Christ. But that means that we've got to look and challenge policies and systems that result in poverty, exclusion, and violence. You have to count the cost if you're going to follow Jesus. And this week, more than any other week, reminds us of the cost of following Jesus. We have to follow Jesus beyond being Americans, beyond being any race, beyond being any sexual gender, any identity, whatever. We have to, first and foremost, our identity has to be found in the living one, this Christ, that calls us into these spaces but we have to follow and challenge in a different way than maybe folks outside of Christ or understanding of Christ would challenge. We need to challenge these structures and these systems with humility 
and compassion. If we just become violent in our language, in our actions, we've become no better. We're just a different oppressive system. But Jesus would say compassion and humility. And so we challenge that in a way that doesn't create more victims. We don't create more wounds. You choose death rather than that. That's what Jesus modeled. And so we listen. We affirm people and their dignity. We disagree, but we do it with respect and dignity because even that person who maybe have a, have a, has a different view of us, a different view of the world, a different way to get to peace, right? That difference doesn't mean that we get to extinguish the image of God in that person. The ultimate image of the cross, I think it's a theological interpretation which is beautiful and so true, is Jesus' statement in John, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do I believe, and, and this might, I just personally don't know that Jesus ever said that on the cross. I doubt he did because you don't talk when you're crucified. You can't talk when you're crucified. Like, but did he say, Father, forgive them? Yes, that was the act. That was the deep truth that we're taught. Like the cross transforms our desire for vengeance. The cross transforms our desire to get our way our way. And it demands that we say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And we live out that peacemaking path even as we speak against and work against the injustices that promote oppression and violence and school shootings and hatred towards the other, all of those things. And I would warn us that if we're going to live out this faith, truly as Jesus would, you can expect persecution from those who benefit from the conventional wisdom. You can expect it. Set your clock to it. Inclusion, compassion, humility, sacrifice. When you start pushing up against the power structures, whether it's religion, whether it's a national identity and a family, <laughs> you start pushing up against patriarchy and a family system, guess what? you're going to face persecution. I've come to believe that the, when Jesus said that he'd leave the 99 for the one, I think what he meant or what he should have said was that the 99 are going to leave him when he goes after the one. Because that's been my experience. My experience in this life of faith of being a pastor, of trying to make my way through and out of fundamentalist heritage Christianity where I was the problem and I still am the problem, I totally recognize it, but I've, I've seen it over and over again that when a person decides to go after the one, it's not that they leave the 99, it's that the 99 leave because they don't want to do it because there's too much at stake for the 99 that are in. That's why everybody scattered when Jesus was arrested. It's why... I think the crowds and the multitudes weren't anywhere to be found at certain times in Jesus' ministry because he would go after that one. And so this alternative vision, right, this alternative path, whether it's in your school or your work, whenever you, whenever you speak against cliques that exclude people, whenever you take that, that, I don't know, like you go out to lunch at high school now, it's crazy, I see them. They just let these prisoners out every day. <laughs> They're walking around like... Are the inmates running the, what is going on? Put them back in prison. They should be in there from nine to three. Like, I know most of our teenagers are out, but I know they all listen to this throughout the week because they're mesmerized by my sermons. If you're listening to this, you're a teenager. 
Like you start inviting that kid to go out to lunch with you all, to hang out with you all, who's shy, quiet, doesn't fit in, doesn't blend in with your social group, you'll face persecution from your social group. It's going to happen. We're just hardwired to do that. Unfortunately, our culture does that. It's going to happen, but that's the way of peace. <laughs> that's the way of peace. I don't know any other way to live it, proclaim it. It's just, it is what it is. I, sometimes I feel like Jeremiah, just, I can't not say it. <laughs> It's not fair to not say it, because when you actually live it, you experience it, and, and there's a joy in it. There's a joy in knowing that the persecution is because of love, and that's the great mystery of faith, I think, and that's the great mystery of living in the flow of the Spirit of God, and that's what happens, right? That's how we become better. That's how the world becomes a better place, because when we challenge the violent exclusionary systems and structures, when we live out this path of Jesus that he demonstrated and taught particularly clearly during Holy Week, right? We live in the flow of the Spirit of Jesus, and we start moving the needle in the right direction towards peace on earth, streets of gold, no more tears. So as we wrap up this morning, as we wrap up our series, we're going to close with a song that you might have heard, probably. It's called King of Kings, but it's this song about the story of Jesus. And I want to say that this song is about the Jesus of faith. <laughs> and it's an interpretation of, and it's all these beautiful metaphors. And let's not get caught up in the metaphors. What it's saying is the freedom and the hope that this life of the historical Jesus brings us and the sacrifice that Jesus made is 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 unimaginable for his people, for us. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. And I believe that same spirit lives in every person on the planet ever born. I really do believe that. And faith is, is, the, is the key to living into it, right? To believe that about yourself. And so what is it that God's inviting you into today? Maybe you're kind of new to this whole thing and you came today and you're like, it's already longer than I thought it was going to be. I was snookered. Maybe it's just a little nudge, like, well, come out to Good Friday, because on Good Friday, we're going to focus on this idea of surrendered to love and what that was on Good Friday and what it means for us today. It's going to be kind of a, there's going to be things for us to do tactile and participate together. Now, you don't have to come up and sing or anything like that, just at your table. But I think it's going to be a good experience. And so maybe just attend the Good Friday experience. Maybe you've been around for a while and you've been here in this way of Jesus and it makes sense in your own life. You know that your own actions and your attitudes have not been the way of peace. And you said, I really want to live out that way of peace. I want to live this life. I want to see heaven on earth. I want to live out this inclusive, compassionate politic of Jesus. Well, baptism still is this beautiful demonstration of that desire of of being a part of that. And so maybe you want to get baptized. We're going to do baptisms on April 16th. You can check that box. And I hope for those of you that have made that commitment and you're walking this peacemaking path as best you can and trying to live out those, those, that rule of life that we've talked about around peacemaking, that you'll look for a place in your life where exclusion happens, where violence is taking place, and you will actively challenge it. Prayerfully, but actively challenge it. Participate in demonstrations that make sense to you. Learn about it. This is the path of Jesus. And it is the path that brings salvation and healing and hope to our world and also to us as individuals. So during this song, I want to just encourage you to close your eyes. 
You can take this few moments to fill out your Connect card. Our, our room hosts during the song are going to receive the donations. They'll pick up the baskets on the table. If you're in the um, bleachers, you already know you've got to give double in the orange kiosks, you know, if you want to keep them open, I suppose. You know. But just take a breath. And, and, and maybe you've been in this Jesus thing and, and you go, wow, like this is a bit more than like raise my hand and go to heaven kind of thing. But it has so much meaning for our lives. And it can affect the way we experience God and the way we share God and the way we see God in others. Oh, the world comes to life. The world comes to life when we value the things that the historical Jesus valued. I believe that. I've seen it. So we'll do that here in a, for a few moments, and then I'll come with our blessing, get you out of here for the rest of the day.